But we're going to go to Matthew 1, 18. We're in a series called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And what we're doing is we're looking at Old Testament prophecies and how they're fulfilled in the coming and the birth of Jesus Christ. Christmas is a magical time, right? I mean, even people that are here and maybe are, and it's true, at Christmas time, it's not like our problems go away. Some, some experience real depression and discouragement at Christmas. But Christmas really is a magical time. And if you're nostalgic like me, you love the Christmas season. I love everything about it. Yeah, I'll just tell you how nostalgic I am. Yesterday... I got to go spend some time with people that I haven't seen for like 30 years, that I worked with when I was, in, I was in college. I did landscaping. We were all together because the business was being sold. And I wore my old sweatshirt that they gave me when I worked there. I saved it. It's like in the back of my closet. My wife cannot believe and cannot stand that I save like old sweatshirts. And I put it on, and I walked, to the, walked into the reunion. And I loved it. And they loved it. Christmas has this magical feeling about it, doesn't it? Brian Adams is right. There's something about Christmas time. You can feel magic in the air. I remember... My brother and I, I don't remember how old we were, but I remember laying in our beds Christmas Eve and the magic of that time. And, and we heard, I'm going to tell you something right now, I heard Santa Claus and we saw Santa Claus. I did. I heard his reindeer and sleigh land on the rooftop. And and my brother heard it too. We looked at each other and we were like, he's here. And then we said, let's go see. So we got out of our beds and we walked down the hall of our rancher home and we got to the living room and it was lit up just with Christmas lights and there were presents all around the tree and then I looked out the the front window of our house and Santa was looking in the window And he was angry. (laughs) And I knew why he was angry. He didn't have to tell me. Because I knew that if you see Santa, then all the presents are gone. So me and my brother ran back down the hallway, jumped into our beds, and waited until Christmas morning, eternity. 
And we walk down that hallway with one thing in our mind. Did angry Santa <laughs> take all of our presents? And when we got there, all the presents were still there. And there was a seed of doubt <laughs> planted in my mind. Because I had been told, if you see Santa, you don't get any presents. But I got the presents. And I started to wonder if Santa was real. Something magical about Christmas. Yesterday I was talking to this guy. He's got a a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old. And he said that this is the first year that his 10-year-old doesn't believe. And he told her, if you do believe, you get double the presents. (laughs) If you don't believe, cutting it back. So for my sake, he said, believe. She doesn't believe in Santa. She does believe in Elf on the Shelf. Christmas is magical. But do you know, there are many people who put Santa, Elf on the Shelf, and the magical, heartwarming feelings that we have at Christmas, they put the story of Jesus, the true meaning of Christmas, in the same category. It's acceptable at Christmas. It's heartwarming baby in the manger, it's magical, and we all will enjoy it whether we believe it or not. There's a willingness on the parts of many to accept certain parts of Christianity, but a discomfort with the supernatural. And the true story of Christmas demands a belief in the supernatural. Do you know, Christian, brother, sister, do you know what you believe? Christmas is a time to really wrestle with some of the 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 supernatural truths of Christianity. And we're going to touch on one today. There's a lot of controversy that surrounds what Matthew writes right here, that Jesus was born of a virgin. We sing it in our songs. We read it in the Scripture. What, what, what we do with virgin birth is like a test case for orthodoxy. There's a lot of people who are content with the deity of Christ. They believe in the death of Christ. They believe in the resurrection of Christ. But they can't get past the incarnation of Christ. God, man, man, God. Scientifically, impossible. 
So let's look at Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25, and read what this gospel writer says about the birth of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word and that I would be able to give a sense of what it says. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, Matthew writes, when his, Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, engaged legally to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew, in speaking about the incarnation of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, quotes an Old Testament prophet by the name of Isaiah who, as Jabe just mentioned, came 600 years prior to Jesus. So let's go to, to that quote. That's Isaiah chapter 7. Flip in your Bibles backwards. Isaiah chapter 7. Verse 14. This is Isaiah writing... 700 years prior to the coming of Christ. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Matthew is quoting Isaiah. Now, there's several controversies that emerge right away. We're going to dig into to the Scriptures here and hopefully come away with something. See, we could make the service magical, right? We could make the service magical and we could just talk about stories and I could tell you about Santa and, and, and we could sing some Christmas carols and we could go home and we'd feel warm and fuzzy inside, but we need more than that, church, don't we? Friends, we need more for our souls than just, just magical stories. We need the truth of a person, of a Savior, come to save, as Matthew says, His people from their sins. Amen? That's what we're looking for. We need something for our souls. So let's dig in 
to the Scriptures. Let's seek to know what we believe. A lot of Christians today get very upset with people who don't believe in Christianity. They get very upset that there are people who actually believe in other world religions. But what I find to be true is this, is that oftentimes the logic that people who believe in something different than Christianity, the logic that they use that you are so uncomfortable with is the same logic that you use in defending your faith. In other words, there's a lot of Christians that don't know what they really believe. Let's not be. We got, we got God's Word. We know, what, we, we know what God has said. We have to study it. We have to know it. Do you know God's Word? This is where we find truth. This is where we find the foundations of our faith. So let's look at some controversies here. The first controversy is this. When Isaiah says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. To whom does Isaiah refer? Who is the the virgin that's going to conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Who's he referring to? Some people would say, some theologians would say, that Isaiah is referring to his own son. He took a virgin as a wife, and she conceived, and they named him Mahar Shalahashbaz. You can read that story. I love that name, by the way. <laughs> I want to name one of my sons Mahar Shalahashbaz. I missed out. I got two. I didn't name them that. But I'd love to hear them playing football, playing middle linebacker, tackled by Mahar Shalahashbaz. So some would say that Isaiah is referring to, the, to his, his wife that he took, a virgin that conceived and a son, and that that would serve as a sign to this nation that there was still, they could still hope in God. So that's one of the controversies. Some would say that he was referring not necessarily to his own son, but to a child that would be born in his lifespan. In, in the next 40 to 50 years. And so some would say this is a reference to Hezekiah who came and brought reform and hope to the nation of Israel. But if Isaiah only had in mind himself or Hezekiah, then Matthew would be improper to quote this passage the way that he has done. It would, be, it would be improper for him to go back into Isaiah. If that was fulfilled in Isaiah's son or in the birth of Hezekiah, it would be wrong for Matthew to use it in reference to Jesus. Now, some would say, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah, even though he didn't know fully what he was, what he was conceiving, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
Isaiah was always referring to Jesus. There's another explanation that I find to be the the most helpful. And it's that prophecies, Old Testament prophecies, have primary and then secondary fulfillment. In other words, when a prophecy is spoken, they drop, it drops like a stone into the water, and then that stone ripples out. And so the meaning ripples forward. What am I saying here? I'm saying that the original audience of Isaiah had some understanding of what this meant. Fulfilled potentially in Isaiah and the birth of his son. Fulfilled potentially in Hezekiah. But fulfilled in a consummate way in the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, there's another controversy. And this came about in the the 19th century and into the 20th century when liberal theologians started to attack the veracity of the Bible and of the Christian faith. And the controversy stirred on the Hebrew word that we have translated virgin and is sometimes translated young woman. Am I boring you? Yes, I am. Listen, just a couple more minutes, because there's some good truth here. There was a controversy born. It was called the Alna Bethula controversy. And Bethula was the Hebrew word for virgin. Virgin being someone who is clinically free of any sexual activity. The meaning is clear. But the word also gave the sense of ulna, which is a young woman. Now we know that young woman does not necessarily equal or carry the implication of virgin. If that word is translated young woman, then we have no need to prove that the birth of Jesus was supernatural. And so there was another word that the, that the Hebrew word gives a sense of translation to, and it's that of maiden, which historically has strongly suggested the idea of a virgin birth. What is it? Is it young woman? Is it maiden? Is it virgin? Does the language that Matthew used of virgin really mean virgin? You didn't realize you were coming for a sex ed class today, did you? I want you to go back to Matthew 1. And I want you to see what's happening in the context here as Matthew describes it. Now, 
Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, promised, pledged in marriage, before they came together. You didn't realize there was so much sex in the Bible, did you? You know what before they came together means, right? You know. Before they had sex. What happened before they had sex? She was found to be with child. Uh, 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 uh. How'd that happen? <laughs> the lights are going off, right? You don't read your Bible the way you need to read your Bible. You should read your Bible like you're reading it for the first time. Can you imagine reading a book and you read? Now, before they were, came together and before, before they were betrothed and before they had either come together, she was found to be with child. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We got a problem here. What If you're Joseph, what do you think? You think what you would think. Uh-oh. She done slept with somebody else before me. And that's what he concluded, right? And her husband, Joseph, he's a just man, and he's unwilling to put her to shame. He resolved to what? Divorce her quietly. Why? Because she cheated on me. Because she violated our betrothal. Because she violated the engagement. Joseph has a lot of assumptions that he's working with, and they're the same ones that we work with, and none of his assumptions include a virgin birth. That's crazy. That doesn't come into our minds. It didn't come into Joseph's either. Women don't become pregnant without a man involved. Now, in this day and age, Christmas messages are going to get crazy here in the next 10 years. But then the Scripture tells us she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Before the word virgin is ever used or quoted, we have the concept. It's right there. Is it young woman? Is it maiden? Is it virgin? The sense of the context is that we have here a virgin. But then we see in verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the second time we hear this, Holy Spirit. Conceived of a Holy Spirit. The pronouncement is not what Joseph feared. God 
is responsible for this. God is the reason for the virgin's conception. And then we get to verse 22 that says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The incarnation is supernaturally planned by God. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, okay, Matthew, any other accounts besides Matthew? Yeah, let's look at Luke's. Flip over to Luke. Luke chapter 1. We have Luke's account of the birth of Jesus and his account of how it was going to take place. How does it take place? Gabriel, an angel, appears to Mary. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favor one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, This is a good question. How will this be since I am a virgin? Come on, Gabriel. Give me something here. And the angel answered her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. How's this going to be? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of the Holy Spirit and and you are going to give birth to the Son of God. How does that happen? Verse 7, 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. You believe that, church? The context of the teaching of the virgin birth screams affirmation. Shouts the truth that Jesus, the Son of God, was born of a virgin. Mary and Joseph both considered this, like us, a blatant impossibility. But God says, nothing is impossible. Me. Our faith, church, friends, is rooted in the supernatural activity of God, breaking in to, to the ordinary, breaking in to creation with a plan that He has conceived 
the scripture tells us to save sinners, and it would never happen if it weren't for the power of Almighty God, because nothing is impossible for Him. Your salvation, your salvation, you're banking on the fact that a God can do the impossible. The Word, the Holy Spirit coming upon you and overshadowing you, that's the same language that was used in the book of Genesis when the, before creation, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the, the waters and then in the power of the Holy Spirit brought forth life. That's the same language that's being used here. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, there is an agreement that Christ's birth would come to pass miraculously, supernaturally, through the creative power of God. What you believe is supernatural. What you believe is miraculous. What you believe is the result of the creative power of God. In other words, we need a miracle. This isn't just feel-good Christmas stuff, guys. We need, if we would be saved, we need the miraculous intervention of God. We need a virgin birth. We need a God-created plan for salvation. We need God to intervene. We need a God who does the impossible so that we can have a real Savior who could really save His people from their sins. Amen? Now, I want to, in closing give you two applications. Because, and I think it's interesting that Dave did this, in his prayer, he referenced the name of Jesus. And I, I find that interesting because that's what Matthew is doing here. He gives us two names for the Savior. Did you see that? It's right here. She will bear a son, verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which is it? Is it Jesus? Or should we call him Emmanuel? Two names. Do you want to be happy? Really happy? Truly happy and satisfied? Then recognize this. Happy is the person who doesn't just have vague notions of God's mercy and God's forgiveness and God's goodness. Not just a magical feeling about Christmas, but a trust in the person of Jesus. That's, where, that's what you were made for. That's where true happiness comes. It's in trusting in Jesus, trusting in Emmanuel. Now, I want to focus on Emmanuel because that's our series. I could do a whole sermon on the two names here, Jesus and Emmanuel. We're just going to focus for a minute on Emmanuel. It's deeply interest, interesting. 
We need to settle in our minds. Young people raised in the church, with, raised in Christian families, are departing the Christian faith at an alarming rate. And it's because their foundations of what they believe are not sure. We used to be able to get away with that. You can't, this, the society we live in is becoming increasingly secularized. Which I think a lot of people glamorize the 50s and 60s. We're not, or the 50s, not the 60s, 50s. We're not going back there. We're not going back to the 50s. And I don't want to pop any bubbles here. But, but the reality of it is, is a lot of people in the 50s, because of the way they lived their lives, gave the appearance of Christianity, but they weren't Christians who were trusting in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Judeo-Christian values will not save anyone. Jesus saves. You've got to have a relationship with Jesus. That gives meaning to verses like, depart from me, I never knew you. What do you mean? I lived a life that looked a certain way. I went to church on Sunday. No. So, so what am I saying? I'm not quite sure, but I'll, I'll say this. <laughs> I think that some of the best days of the church in America are ahead of us, not behind us. Because I believe God is going to refine those who are truly Christians, and then they're really going to be a city on a hill. But settle this in your minds. This is where I was. There's my connection. Settle this in your minds. If you are a Christian, you must believe that God, Jesus, is perfect man and perfect God, perfect God and perfect man. You lose sight of that. And as J.C. Ryle says, you will run into some fearful heresies. He's got to be 100% God. He's got to be 100% man. He's got to be 100% man and 100% God. Go home and think about that. Emmanuel means God with us. He had a nature like ours. He was with us in human flesh and blood. He was with us in very nature God, as very God. When we read the Scripture accounts, the Gospel accounts about Jesus, you will read things like this, that He got tired, that He grew hungry, that He was thirsty, that he wept, that he groaned, that he experienced pain, just like we do. He was born a man of the Virgin Mary. That's his humanity. But when you read the Gospel accounts, you also read that Jesus knew what was in man's heart. He knew their thoughts. He read your mind. He had power over demons and Satan. He worked incredible miracles, the Scripture tells us, with a word. He allowed one of His disciples to call Him, My God! 
He said things like this, before Abraham was, I am. He's eternal God. Scripture says he's over all and through all and in all. Amen. He is, we see when we read the Scriptures, his humanity, we see his divinity. Let me get the guys to return. The band. Church, friends, do you need a strong foundation for your faith? Do you need a hope that's eternal? Then you must keep in constant view the divinity of the the man, the God child born at Christmas. Do you need a solid foundation? Do you need a certainty of the hope that you claim? Then you've got to keep in constant view the divinity of Jesus. If you came here this morning trusting in God, what I'm hoping this is doing is helping you to see, it's reminding you that you are trusting in Almighty God. This isn't just a magical feeling. All power in heaven and earth belongs to Him. This is the truth that the Scripture says. If you are really trusting in Jesus, nothing can separate you from Him. None will pluck you out of his hand. Are you rejoicing in that truth this morning, church? If you're a believer, don't let your heart be troubled. Why? Because Jesus is fully God. We've got to keep that in constant view. Do you need comfort this morning in the trial you're experiencing? I know from talking with many of you that you're suffering right now. Do you need comfort in your trial? Do you need solace in your suffering? Then you need to keep in constant view the humanity of Jesus. Jesus actually laid on Mary's lap, and yet he knew the heart of a man. Jesus was troubled with feelings, he experienced temptation, he cried. He groaned, cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt things deeply. What does that mean for us? Church, it means we can pour out our hearts in prayer to God. You can tell Him everything that's in your heart, that's on your mind. You can pray those things knowing that you have a Savior who can sympathize with you. we got to keep in constant view Christmas. Not just at Christmas. we got to keep in constant view that we have a Savior that is fully God and fully man. Right here, in the beginning of, the, of our New Testament, in the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we have some incredible truth. Praise God for the truth 
of the Incarnation here revealed in the first chapter of Matthew, in the first chapter of our New Testament. It tells us of one who came to save us. It tells us of Emmanuel, God with us. And that is good news. Amen?